I don't have anything at all tonight about uh, Vinny or dinosaurs. But I saw this book in the um, in the farmhouse uh, yesterday, and it it caught my eye. The just thought I'd bring it in to show you. The title is uh, you probably most of you probably can't read it, but the title is "There Is No Suffering." <laughs> I just wanted to see what would happen. <laughs> It's evocative, right? I mean, I think that's clear in, in your response. And, and uh, it was for me, and, and I tend to appreciate this uh, this kind of challenge in a sense. I like this kind of provocation. Um, It wakes up in me a lot of wonder, a lot of curiosity, and uh, sort of fortifies this this sense of direction, Um, even, you know, when I've lost touch or or contact, I think, with with the possibility. Um, I also think this can be uh, patronizing in in a way, right? And so I think in bringing it into the room in the middle of a retreat when... You know, I've sat a lot of retreat, and I know that there's a lot of suffering, right? Um, so it can be, it can be either. Um, it can be patronizing, or it can be um, inspiring. It can uh, compel us to ask how, right? How can this be true? How can this be true? Also, um, when I was writing um, my notes for tonight, I looked up, and I had seen it before, but I hadn't paid as much attention to it. I looked up above my desk, and there's a, uh, a piece of wood with uh, some, some natural branches that have been, I think, maybe glued to the top, and uh, underneath it, there's a, little, there's a little sign. And the sign says... When you are off balance, always write yourself with wisdom. Good enough. Good instructions. And yet there's the word always. Right? So I have the same experience uh, in, in a certain way. Like, wouldn't that be fantastic if I could always write myself with with wisdom? So this, too, can, can be patronizing in a sense. It really depends on, on how we read it and our state of mind. Or in this case, it can be a clue, uh, hinting, if you will, at how right views and skillful actions come together to restore harmony in our mind and the world around us. The Buddha himself said... <clears throat> as far as we can tell, something like the Dharma is subtle and hard to see. The Dharma is subtle and hard to see.
we can't really teach the Dharma. We can point toward it, but the Dhamma, this true Dhamma, is ultimately non-conceptual. We could teach for the next hundred years, and we could add all of those talks up, and it wouldn't be enough. Uh, it wouldn't get us there. But we can learn how to meditate. And the teachings are in service of that. And our meditation practice is a way of planting seeds such that understanding arises. Many years ago, and for a period of maybe five or six years, I would travel once or twice a year to uh, the Big Pine uh, Bishop area of California where I um, was uh, connected with a place called the School of Lost Borders and I was doing a lot of vision quest ceremony and training there with folks and toward the end doing some, some apprenticeship. Uh, and there was a, a fellow there who, who had uh, passed away right around the time that I started coming around who was responsible for that school and some of the early eco-psychology texts that were pivotal and, and really, in a sense, bringing back to life a, a nearly uh, extinct uh, practice. Uh, his name is Stephen Foster, and um, he said that, and I'm paraphrasing, for the people to survive, the poetry must be good. I think what he meant was that we would need people to connect non-conceptually with the truth of life and to teach or write or paint or compose or preach or minister or guide from that place. Poetry, as with other art forms, evokes the liminal, the unexplainable, by providing a shape-shifting experience where the immaterial and material, the form and formless, come together to be experienced by ourselves. We are and have been for thousands of years trying to integrate the best art in the same way that we try to integrate our deepest insights on the cushion. And we do this with an inevitable, and perhaps if we are not careful, frustrating, sometimes very frustrating, learning curve, precisely because when awareness is tarnished with um, what in the Pali is a vidya, uh, not knowing, uh, we view the world in dualistic terms. Dharma practices, like art, collapse this duality into pure awareness, spaciousness, emptiness, not self.
want to share with you a short passage from Tolstoy's War and Peace. Uh, Natasha is being courted by Prince Andrew. After dinner, Natasha, at Prince Andrew's request, went to the clavichord and began singing. Prince Andrew stood by a window talking to the ladies and listened to her. In the midst of a phrase, he ceased speaking and suddenly felt tears choking him, a thing he had thought impossible for him. He looked at Natasha as she sang, and something new and joyful stirred in his soul. He felt happy and at the same time sad. He had absolutely nothing to weep about, yet he was ready to weep. What about? His former love? The little princess? His disillusionments? His hopes for the future? Yes and no. The chief reason was a sudden, vivid sense of the terrible contrast between something great and illimitable within him in that limited and material that he and even she was. This contrast weighed on and yet cheered him while she sang. Karlov Nausgaard, who I referenced a few nights ago, comments on this passage from Tolstoy. The contradiction between the illimitable that dwells within us and our simultaneous limitation in earth-boundedness is the driving force behind all literature and all art, or so I believe, but not only that. The longing to equalize the difference, suspend the contradiction, and simply exist in the world, undifferentiated from it, is also an important part of all religious practice. Personally, um, the closest I came to this true Dhamma on this retreat was just after the bell rang at the 9 a.m. sitting on um, Monday morning. Beginner's luck, I guess. Um, we sat together. Uh, the bell rang. I was sitting here. Um, I opened my eyes and uh, right about in, in this direction, uh, looking that way, uh, three birds flew from uh, that sort of middle section of shrubbery to the next one and, and landed. Uh, not altogether anything unusual, of course, but nor in that moment, that brief moment, um, was my perception ordinary. Um, sometimes when we have such experiences with nature, we say things like, that was beautiful, or that was pretty, or amazing. Um, which falls short or doesn't capture what took place at all. How do we capture the non-conceptual? Typically, we are inspired, something we really have language for. Perhaps, I wonder, maybe this is the reason art developed. 
Zen koans, similarly, are questions that can't be resolved with logic. They use language to trick the mind into completely letting go of concepts in order to steer the mind into inspired moments of clarity. So on Monday morning, roughly 10 o'clock, when I opened my eyes after the bell rang, uh, my sense of self, like the felt sense, um, in, in a basic way, just the felt sense of me or I, someone sitting here, uh, temporarily dissolved into simply a feeling of being alive and connected to a world that I was no longer looking out at, but which I was a part of. That world somehow simultaneously contained both the visual of birds and a greater awareness of seeing them. And in the absence of a felt sense of me who was looking at the world or seeing the birds, that I knew of the birds confirmed my existence more as awareness itself than as someone we call Chris. All of this was held in a great silence and a pervasive feeling of goodness or benevolence for no apparent reason. Confirming the well-being that I believe is inherent in the universe or may be inherent in states of mind absent dualistic thinking. The point is not so much that beauty happens, but that beauty, like virtue, which I also spoke about in my first talk, moves us to be in the world in a different way. It's moments like these that give me faith in the Dhamma. But more importantly, it's moments like these that make me happy and also settled. Settled in the world while aspiring to engage rather than close down or shut the world out. I'm reading a Nausgaard book, you'll have to forgive me. (laughs) Just uh, the night before last, uh, he was describing, Nausgaard was describing um, a a really similar experience. Um, He was in a car, in in his case, and I I think he might have said that he had picked his children up from school and was driving home, and um, there was, I I think, a, a larger group of birds that passed by the the window, the front window of the car. Nosgaard writes, the feeling it gave me was one of shock-like joy at the simple fact that I was here, now, there, contemporary. Joy that I existed together with everything else in existence. Not the experience itself, that means nothing but the longing to be in the world which it gives rise to, or to open to the world. It's like this when our practice is going well. We practice formally and we also step forward 
into our life despite its complexities, pains, and uncertainties simply because we want to open to the world. Placing this example in the context of specific Buddhist teachings, such experiences illuminate non-duality and confirm the value of questioning the self. And for that matter, questioning everything the untrained mind takes to be real. The Buddhist tradition makes a a pretty bold claim, as evidenced in the first book that I shared. It makes a bold claim that we don't see the truth. And the word truth is tricky because, you know, like, did the Buddha have the truth and no one else did? And was he an egomaniac or did he just, did he just get it, maybe, right? Meditation practice is designed to help us see this truth, which it calls the Dhamma. And it says that when seen and known, we are more prone to peace and happiness, less subject to the causes of suffering. So, firstly, we see dualistically. This is the result of a self-reflective consciousness. There's no fault assigned. This is the human condition. This is not accusatory. This is also a shared, of course, reality. Second, we take this sense of self or I to be solid, fixed, and independent. Still, no fault assigned, nothing that is personal. But, or and, or however, there is the suggestion of confusion. There is the suggestion of confusion, or not seeing clearly. Okay, so because this I lives in a dualistic world, it, or we could say we, are essentially unwhole, we're fragmented from the start. And deep down inside, there's a gnawing, restless longing to close the gap between self and other, inside and outside, um, what we don't have and what we want. And in, in more clinical terms, we're caught trying to create and maintain a solid sense of self that somehow feels complete. It's as if we're trying to get somewhere, and once we are there, we will finally feel okay forever. And even when the practice is going really, 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 really well, in the mind has gotten considerably quiet and stable. And even we've discovered space and longer durations of space between thoughts. There's this energy 
revving, trying to get or to do or to make. There, there, this, this selfing is felt and seen at such a subtle level. We realize either we're getting close or we're fucked and it's never going away. <laughs> And we become, in a way, um, furious. And after that, resolute. There's this, I mean, I mean you, and we can buckle and turn back. Um, but there's this sense of just wanting to be done with it. Like if I've worked this hard, and I'm experiencing a lot of the fruits that the people at the front of the room are talking about, and now still this incessant inability to just be still, to just stop. And there's a sadness because it's increasingly clear at this point that we are not making it happen. We're not doing it. And that's only a stage in the practice. The problem is that everything around us and within us is always changing. We are trying to control an ever-changing, uncontrollable world, comprised most intimately of mental and physical phenomena, what we call objects of meditation. We have set ourselves up for an impossible task, so we suffer, and this is the dukkha the Buddha spoke of. So this self that suffers, it has a name. Usually a first name, a middle name, and a last name. Depending on your upbringing, maybe more names than that. It has a history, it has a future filled with things we hope will happen and other things we hope will never happen. Maybe you have a self kind of like this. We spend a lot of time going over the past in our head even though we can't change the past. And we know that, but the habit is to go over the past in our head. That's the habit. And we spend a lot of time fantasizing about the future even though it stirs up hope, fear, and worry. Clinging. The self has wants and desires, backaches, toothaches, heartaches. The self identifies by gender, occupation, race, income, vocation, and a million other things. This self has something to gain and something to lose. And if we're not being careful, it will have either a good retreat or a bad one. From a relative perspective, all of this is true. And even the dualism is true. I'm sitting here, looking out at you, and you're sitting there, looking up at me. From what the Buddhist tradition 
calls an absolute or ultimate perspective, none of this is true. There is no self. This teaching, however, does not deny our existence, but rather says, I think, more appropriately, that there are different levels of clarity or reality, and that the level that we normally live at and see through is not the whole truth, it's partial. There is a more complete and also a more simple picture of the world. This is called the absolute or ultimate view. It's a view where cause and effect are better understood. The self is understood and experienced. The self is understood as an experience of constantly changing mental and physical phenomena. What we call a self is more of a mental impression created by the sensory flow of millions of fast-moving objects across all sense doors seeing, smelling, hearing, feeling, touching, thinking, hearing, seeing, smelling, thinking, touching, feeling, incessantly, giving rise to consciousness. But consciousness is inherently dualistic. So again, we're stuck simply because we're human. No fault, nothing to blame, no accusation. No judgment required. Feminist theologian Rita Gross, talking about enlightened mind, writes, we run headlong into the puzzle of the relationship between two truths, absolute and relative. There is a conceptual absolute truth that remains forever uncapturable in a verbal discursive formula, though it is experienceable in time, I'm sorry, in space and silence in discursive relative truths for handling the myriad phenomena we encounter in daily experience. These truths are inseparable and balancing them is one of the most difficult tasks of an adequate or spiritual life. Relative truth is felt directly when we are caught in self-view all forms of clinging, and the result is dukkha, discontent. This is felt, this dukkha is felt by what we call self. Dukkha, then, we could say, is the tension caused by the splitting that identification and attachment causes. And when the insight and understanding of the absolute view are not available to us, Rebecca Del Rio writes, Come new to this day. Remove the rigid overcoat of experience, the notion of knowing. The beliefs that cloud your vision. Leave behind the stories of your life. Spit out the sour taste of unmet expectation. Let the stale scent of what-ifs waft 
back into the swamp of your useless fears. Arrive curious without the armor of certainty. The plans and planned results of the life you've imagined live the life that chooses you new every breath, every blink of your astonished eyes. Retreat confronts us with the reality of our relative self. All that is mundane about it and difficult. While providing a container to let go of our conditioned and habitual ways of relating to our mind so that we can come closer to the freedom afforded by the view from the absolute. So there's a risk. This is sort of part of our job as teachers is to look at the risk of any, any given uh, teaching or way of uh, articulating a teaching. If we only talk about the relative, we fail to acknowledge the pain of everyday living. We make no space for vulnerability in the path of awakening. If we fail to talk about the absolute, we fail to offer a pathway to alleviating the suffering of everyday life. Of allowing for the coexistence of vulnerability and equanimity. Zen master Dogen supposedly said, uh, and this is often cited, to study the way of enlightenment is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. And Rita Gross again, quote, we could say that all of Buddhist practice is about forgetting the self that we have believed in for so long and that causes so much suffering. In the uh, Theravada or Insight, uh, the Vipassana tradition, the four foundations of mindfulness is really um, one of, if not maybe, the central vehicle for studying the self. And of course, you know, we've been, we've been talking about that throughout the week and um, learning our best to explore uh, that map and model experientially. Um, so what I'd like to do, this is a little bit more, more technical now, and it's also a little bit more of a, re a review, but I'd like to borrow um, from uh, Bhikkhu Analio, who gives us uh, a map, offers a map, of specifically how we can begin to think about, um, but, but more, more than that, but we'll start to watch in our practice um, for insight, right? So, so he's basically saying, let's chart or map uh, 
core liberating insights against the four foundations. You know, it's like, I'll give you a cheat sheet. I'll show you where the insights are. You still have to find them. You know, it's still like looking for marbles in a dark room and the batteries fell out of your headlight um, or your, your flashlight, or right? Um, but he's sort of saying like, I'll just tell you what they are, right? <laughs> so I, I, I want to share that, that, that map with you. And again, this is uh, information that I'm borrowing from, from Biko and Alio. So you may have, or you may not have, you, you, some of you might remember, it feels like a long time ago for me, that when I talked about body, earlier in the retreat, I mentioned all of the categories that showed up in the, that show up in the Satipatthana Sutta, even though we're not necessarily focusing on all of those categories on retreat, and, and we often don't. Um, so there's a little bit of information here that is not explicit in the meditation instructions, but, but that doesn't mean it hasn't been a part of your experience. So in the first foundation, contemplation of body or mindfulness of body, we're instructed uh, to see the body in its elemental form, right? There's a, uh, there's, a, there's a refrain here, if you will. This body is comprised of the same elements as nature. I cannot control them, possess them, or truly own them. They are not me, they are not mine. If you practice with Bhikkhu Analyo, he just he'll just keep he just keeps dropping that in. He's like just he's trying to drive that into our view, essentially, hoping that that view will somehow shift the conditioning. Right? They are not me, they are not mine. So right up front is anatta, in the Pali, not self. The body is formed of elements, earth, water, fire, wind. That there is a something here now with a distinct past and a hoped-for future is an illusion. That's what's being suggested from the absolute view, from a relative level or perspective or experience. I mean, even my body has pain from ways I got hurt when I was younger, right? And I can tell you, based on what's happened to my eyes in the past two years, it's going to be harder to see or read two years from now because my <laughs> eyes are declining really fast. That's true. We also get um, in the contemplation of body essentially a reminder that this body uh, will become a corpse. If this body were to be left outside in the elements, it would decay. It is not exempt from that fate. This can be a shocking and uncomfortable teaching. Um, there's not space for it in this talk, but the, the fruit, the Pali Canon says, 
of contemplating this deeply is joy. It's interesting, right? <clears throat> Impermanence, anicca. This body doesn't last. Doesn't even necessarily feel the same way it did at the beginning of this talk. Breath and sensation, which we work all day, every day with, breath and sensation. Coming and going, changing, increasing in severity, decreasing in severity, changing location from the right shoulder to the middle of the back, temporarily gone. Oh, it's back again in the same spot. Oh, it's heating up, it's getting worse. Aversion kicks in. The body contracts more, the pain is, it's always changing. And, let's see if I can do this. The other category that I, I mentioned uh, was anatomical parts, right? So we have, we have toes, and we have ankles, and we have knees, and we have legs, and we have elbows, and that's what's meant. We have ears, we have noses, right? The teaching, and, and, and this is, um, this is a, I, in my estimation, um, well, it's certainly an archaic and, at this point, sort of lost Buddhist teaching that I think needs to resume its practical place in the center of contemporary Buddhist teachings and practice, both as an expression of wisdom and sealer. And that is the teaching of Asuba. Asuba. Asuba connotes an accurate and compassionate understanding of body and beauty. A knowing that does not misunderstand the body from the perspective of ultimate reality, nor on the relative level commodify or objectify the body, our own body or anyone else's. Certainly we all know that the proliferation of um, misogyny, patriarchal masculinity have condemned uh, everyone's, but particularly uh, women's bodies, to both social and self-scrutiny. And regardless of gender identification and regardless of the orientation of our attraction, when lust and beauty can be separated, seen as related but separate things, our feelings don't have to become the source of unskillful actions. We don't have to project perceived needs onto other people's bodies. People with wisdom are not the target of desire. We do this to ourselves too, don't we? So much of our identity and ways of viewing ourselves is formed by a body image. How we perceive our body, whether it's beautiful or not. 
it's so hard to have a liberating perception of and experience of our own body given how we internalize cultural norms which we have done despite that those norms are oppressive. We are part of a collective conscious. And as a result we have determined beauty based on body shape and color. This prejudice and the discrimination it allows is not only unjust, but it undermines awakening for all beings. Those who are on the receiving end of biased projections and actions and those doing the projecting and acting unskillfully. In this teaching, not recognizing asubha or having a correct understanding of beauty is a source of dukkha. Alternatively, when we see the body and its constituent parts, simply skin, flesh, and bones, we are less inclined to get caught up in a materialistic view of body, along with desire, lust, and craving, which keep dukkha intact. So, we have some choices. Either all bodies are beautiful, or all bodies are merely elemental, or bodies are both beautiful and elemental, which seen through the lens of right view are a source of joy and appreciation, less subject to the compulsions of self-view and craving. So just in contemplation of body alone, we have insight into dukkha, insight into anatta, and insight into anicca. Dukkha, dissatisfaction, anatta, not-self, and anicca, impermanence. The three characteristics, the three marks of existence. attributed to the Buddha. Practitioners, I will teach you the unconditioned in the path leading to the unconditioned. Listen to this. And what, practitioners, is the unconditioned? An ending of desire. An ending of hatred. An ending of delusion. This is the unconditioned. And what, practitioners, is the path leading to the unconditioned? Mindfulness directed to the body. This is called the path leading to the unconditioned. I think what is implied is that insight takes the volitional power out of the three root hindrances. Strong polar tendencies of aversion and grasping lose their hold on us and we're less prone to believe the stories in our head. Sharon Salzberg writes, Mindfulness helps us get better at seeing the difference between what's happening and the stories we tell ourselves about what's happening, stories that get in the way of direct experience. Often such stories treat a fleeting state of mind as if it were our entire permanent self. This brings us to the second 
contemplation or the second foundation of mindfulness, which is Vedana. Vedana translates, one way it translates is as feeling tones. The tonal quality of uh, feelings. So at any given moment, the body is registering pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Like so very, very simple. I mean, not, maybe not simple to really learn or develop a, you know, a mature relationship to, but the, the teaching itself is very compact. In any given moment, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral is happening. And we're not actually trying to change this. Like meditation is not trying to find a way around this, right? Rather, what's being suggested is that there's a value in training the mind to see. Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Right? The benefit is that typically the law of conditionality in learned behavior is such that when it's pleasant, if there's no mindfulness, we grasp. If it's unpleasant, there's no mindfulness, we push away. If it's neither pleasant or unpleasant and there's neutrality, we tend to just spin out get distracted okay. and so again what's pointed to in this teaching is an each or impermanence pleasant unpleasant neutral 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 pleasant 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 unpleasant neutral unpleasant over and over and over again it just doesn't stay the same third foundation of mindfulness we've spent quite a bit of time on recently, and I'll review, not to exclude the other examples, but um, I didn't have the complete list from Vinny and Cheryl, so just to review some possible phenomena or objects from, I think it was my instructions yesterday, wanting, not wanting, and thinking, which, as I just mentioned, correlate with uh, the three Vedanas. And then I mentioned the possibility of contracted, which is tight, rigid, stuck, distracted. And then contentment and still or spacious or opposite qualities. So there's a lot of repetition here. The, what is being pointed out, again, if we, if we look closely at these activities or qualities of mind, anicca, coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. Better it is from the Dhammapada, so attributed to the Buddha, better it is to live one day seeing the rise and fall of things than to live a hundred years without ever seeing the rise and fall of things. So I think because of the, the compactness and the simplicity of the three characteristics, we tend to overlook it. That's been my experience um, until recent years. Um, we can tend to overlook it, uh, not investigate so effortfully in our practice. Or it's also the kind of teaching that we can hear And we kind of nod, and we're like, yeah, makes sense. I got it. But we don't. And that's how the Dhamma works. We do. We do get it. 
And I think that's why you're here. But you can get it a little bit more. And then a little bit more. And then a little bit more. It's so subtle. I used to um, work as a finished carpenter and then uh, framed houses after that. And um, I was so enthralled with uh, craft, with learning something that I knew I couldn't master, but that I could continue to get better at, you know? You know, and there was nothing really cool about being a carpenter, and I was always hurting myself, and, you know. I was gonna say I didn't make much money, but <coughs> I didn't necessarily make a, up, this wasn't upward mobility. <laughs> but it was a hard, you know, it was hard living. It was hard living, and um, um, I think mostly I was sad because I, I, it was hard to connect with people that, that, that that had that that passion for, for craft, you know, um, simple things done done well, which could only be done if you, uh, you know, matched passion with effort. And when I found the Dharma, and this is still true, um, I have a sense that this can hold me for the rest of my life, and I'm at home in that. You see that? This can hold me. I can grow into this, but I can't grow out of it. <clears throat> what these examples point toward is that we have an ability, we have an ability to test the solidity of our perceptions. That's mindfulness practice. And to learn how that investigation is also testing the solidity of the self. As we understand impermanence more clearly, we see the not-self nature of thoughts and feelings and sensations. This pain in my back that was I or me a moment ago is now gone. This current feeling of being tired or too cold will not last very long. How deeply can that penetrate? Nothing that passes through the screen of awareness can be referenced back to anyone or anything outside the laws of conditionality, which is basically an obtuse teaching that says things arise because of innumerable and often unknowable causes and conditions. So, in closing, as insight into the three characteristics develop, we understand that the difficulties, or dukkha, in our life result from not recognizing or aligning ourselves with natural laws, such as anicca, impermanent. And how the level of difficulty we experience is directly tied to how attached we are to our ideas and views in the conditioning represented by them. <coughs> this conditioning um, 
This conditioning, we could say, is driven by or is itself the learned behavior of the relative self. But we can unlearn these behaviors. This is the task of meditation. The view it provides is anatta, not self. The experience it provides is freedom. I'll end with a poem. One morning we will wake up. One morning we will wake up and forget to build that wall we've been building. The one between us, the one we've been building for years, perhaps out of some sense of right and boundary, perhaps out of habit. One morning we will wake up and let our empty hands hang empty at our sides. Perhaps they will rise as empty things sometimes do when blown by the wind. Perhaps they simply will not remember how to grasp, how to rage. We will wake up that morning and we will have misplaced all our theories about why and how and who did what to whom. We will have mislaid all our timeless we will have mislaid all our timelines of when and plans of what, and we will not scramble to write the plans and theories anew. On that morning, not much else will have changed. Whatever is blooming will still be in bloom. Whatever is wilting will wilt. There will be fields to plow and trains to load and children to feed and work to do. And in every moment, in every action, we will feel the urge to say thank you we will follow the urge to bow. Mm -hmm.